Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. As well, there are graphic descriptions of violence against women and sexual assault. If you're in danger and need support, dial 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. If it's an emergency and you're in Australia, dial triple O or contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a former New South Wales police officer who's seen the worst of the worst. I just see the drug trade as, as kind of a, a war that perhaps we don't really need to have. Brett Stevens joined the force as a fresh-faced 21-year-old. 13 years later, he stepped away from policing and chose a different path. But those 13 years left a mark on Brett, as policing does to so many people. That's how bad I'd got and cold. I had no empathy for anyone. We'll talk about the step he took after the force, but to understand the type of character Brett is, we'll go back to a few of the stories that shaped him into who he is today. To start, we're going to the King's Cross in Sydney in the late 1980s. So Korean John was the former Taekwondo champion for the Korean Army. And he had moved to Australia and he's gone, okay, I can make money working or I can be a standover man for the clubs, so Porkies, all those places. Mm. And he, you know, definitely brutalized some some guys who needed to be thrown out, but he used to go a bit overboard. And he also uh, uh, was working for the triads. So he had a reputation as a really hard man justifiably deserved. And so one day, and we were looking for him the day before, we were looking for this guy because he had slit the throat of a Japanese restaurant owner and then knocked out a patron and walked out the door with a patron. So we get this, uh, these two couples come running in, they've got blood all over the guys and the, the wives are sort of carrying him in. And they said, look, some Asian guy, uh, they almost ran him over, they bit the horn and he smashed the window and beat up both men. And they've left the car in Darlingus Road, which has totally choked Darlingus Road. Brought right? it to a standstill. Yeah. To a standstill. So the boss goes to these uh, B crew, he goes, oh, boys, just go up there and uh, see what's going on, right? And so they're gone for about five minutes. And you hear, um, yeah, could we, uh, this is um, 11-1, uh, King's Cross 11-1, could we have uh, uh, backup, you know, outside near Porky's nightclub? And so you hear that, it goes quiet. Then, can we have more backup? Uh, can we have more backup? And can we have more? He keeps saying this. And the boss goes, what the hell are they doing? Can you go up and see what they're doing? And the whole street is choked. The traffic is all choked. And there are hundreds of people. And there's a ring formed at Darlingus Road. 
right, a ring of police with, guess who, Korean John standing right in the middle of the ring. So they've formed the ring, but no one's doing anything, okay? And most of these guys who have uh, attended, they're actually from other stations, so they're not quite sure. Um, And that's when I also say that if you're going to work in a place like that, you better be physically capable to work in this type of environment because it is very physical. So I walk up and I step into this ring. And then Korean John obviously has been looking around. He suddenly realized I've stepped into the ring. I'm going, "Mm, okay, how am I going to defeat this bloke? Everything, the police's reputation is on the line here, not just to mention mine. We didn't have tasers or OC or anything else like that. So it was going to be a fight. So what would I do? How would I defeat this guy? There was only one way I was going to really defeat this guy. I was going to cheat. (laughs) So I just looked at him and he finishes doing his card and he's looking at me. He's like, already? I go, Korean John. You're under arrest for slashing that chap's throat. We're going to put handcuffs on you. And I look over his shoulder and he's gone, just turned his head and went bang and dropped him. And I went to hit him again because all the crowds yelled and then everyone goes quiet and he's, I've knocked him out. I was, I was the most incredulous person <laughs> there and I've knocked him out. Uh, so we just like handcuffed him and we've lifted him up and just carried him across the road and they threw him in the back of the truck. The point is, is that the perception of everyone is that you don't mess with the cops at King's Cross, Mm. right? Even though it was just me, that's the perception. And that is a perception you need when you're going up against real, very hard men, right? Mm. And I give, Korean John, by the way, respect. There was no hard feelings. It was just what had to be done, Mm. right? And I've always worked during the course of my life, working with gangsters and everyone else to give them the respect. I think that is important. A lot of these guys have had no respect when they've grown up. They've grown up in very violent homes and so on. They come out, they are a product of their environment. Uh, I will give them respect. I think that's a really good way to put it, mate. And, and I and I take so much from what you're saying here, uh, Brett. You know, the only way in those environments that you garner respect from those individuals is to do exactly what you've done. Now, there would be many who have never set foot in those environments who would sort of perhaps take a lofty view of that, oh, well, that's ridiculous, drop into their level and stuff. But the reverse is the next coppers that go in, the violence level will increase. Absolutely. And that when I worked with the, the Bloods and Crips and the Norteño Serenio gang members, I actually end up coming quite, I had a lot in common with them, you know, because I believe in honour, courage. They do too, Mm. right? Uh, They're not phony tough. Nothing worse than having a phony tough Mm. person, Mm. right? And so they had all these qualities that I had too, and um, and which was bizarre for them and me. Violence becomes kind of nothing to you. Without, I'm not trying to sound like I'm brave or anything. It's actually a a process where you become so acclimatized Mm -hmm. to the adrenaline rush and all that stuff. And after a while, particularly in the cross, there was no adrenaline rush. Just just Mm -hmm. someone's got a gun. So by the time you get to the TRG, you're already emotionally in the right right space. You're not going to go and shoot someone just because they're doing something dumb. You can sort of usually get a feel if people are going to actually try to kill you as opposed to maybe just trying to threaten you. When we talk about, Brett, that the necessity of having to step up to the plate, it's a necessary capacity at the time. It's a necessary evil. You've, you've worked in the cross, you've been on the TRG, and, and, and it's part of an armour that you put around yourself in those environments. The question I'd like to ask, Brett, is 
once you go through that and you come out the other side and you look back at that, does your view change? Does your view change? Is there a futility almost to it that um, I, I found this myself, that there was, a, there was a lightning bolt moment for me when in a situation where uh, in a gang house where the, uh, the, these little kids came running out little tiny little ones and long story short I was I was struck with this sort of realization that we're just part of this cycle and what we're doing works for tonight it'll work for tomorrow but if I came back here in 20 years that little one and nappies would be the one and the, the full facial tattoos and there were for me and I and I and I and I'm not putting this on anyone else except myself Looking back, it was like that that feeling of it's that, that almost futile. It's not really achieving too much other than the immediacy of what happens at that moment. What, what are your thoughts on that, Brett? I actually see the whole thing as the whole war on drugs, the whole um, – it's pointless. I mean, these young men need status, status and have a good life and build a family and their genetics go on, right? That's the fundamental basic um, human dimension. Um, but we've decided to ship all the manufacturing that these guys had jobs to do, which were good jobs. They've all gone. So next thing, the cartels came in and go, hey, why don't you sell this? This is your new job. And to work in that world, well, you better be hard and strong, right? Because the gang has a territory and the gang has to be the most brutal gang to hold that territory or another gang will come in and take that territory. And guess what? You've got no way of supporting your family and so the, the police, the courts, and we're all just stuck in the middle, you know, turning this over. What, what these men need are jobs that give them status. Without that, it's, we, it's all a waste of time, okay? And all we can do is hold the wall, build more prisons. I mean, America went from 200,000 in the 70s to 2.4 million prisoners. Has anyone seen the correlation? It's interesting. I, and... and um yeah, we were talking off air. I was I was chatting to a inspector from New Zealand Police who went through the academy just a, a, a couple of months after me, who was saying that um, yeah, New Zealand's had a seventy five percent increase in gang membership in the last five years, and so I guess where I'm going, well, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but uh, we 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 think that we're getting on top of it. We think if we build more prisons, if we do this, we're we're gonna we're gonna reduce this. But it's in many ways. The the, the 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 facts would say almost the opposite. It's cool being in a gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Gives you yeah. status. Yeah. And also you are part of a warrior elite. If I'm a blood or a crip, mm. I mean, they don't just let anyone in. Mm. You've got to mm. be a warrior, mm. right? And so kids want to be you. They don't want to be the cop. Mm. They want to be you, right? Even though you're going to have a short life. They've got short life strategies, right? Mm. So they're not going to be around for a long time. They're either going to be locked up for a long time or they're going to be dead or they're going to be maimed. Brett, let's go to 1988, thereabouts. You received a call with regard to a woman being kidnapped. Can you walk us through that case? I just started uh, work. We're standing in the station. It came over, you know, King's Cross 1 or any car in the vicinity. A woman's being kidnapped and dragged into this derelict hotel, which is just up near the King's Cross Hotel in Victoria Street. Got on the radio, said, yeah, King's Cross 1. I said to the boys, you take the truck, we'll all run. There's about four of us. And we just ran up the street, piling through people. Because this, even though it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and it's a beautiful sunny day, there's still hundreds of people on Tullius Road, right? And next thing, uh, we're just pushing through people. 
And we get up to this derelict hotel. There's a guy lying out the side of it. He's got a broken leg. They've broken his leg and they've dragged the girl he's with into this uh, hotel. There's a few guys standing there who'd been with him, but the guy in question has disappeared. I go in, we have to split up because it's a big hotel and it's about four or five stories. I'm by myself and I come down and I hear this uh, pitch black, by the way, inside, even though it's sunny outside, pitch black inside and in the in the torch and I come down and I hear this, um, you know, soft, faint, you know, sobbing kind of thing. And I come down, then I realise um, that the sobbing's coming from the bathroom. I go over to the bathroom and I find her. Uh, so I get other cops um, that come down um, and I was very uncomfortable. I didn't want to touch her. I mean, the instinct was to, to tell her that you're there, um, but um, mm, it's a bit weird. It's all right, mate. I've never had that uh, reaction before. I was just thinking about it. I just uh, Take a breather, mate. That's mm. all right. I've never had an emotional response before. Mm. What do you think's caused that? No. When did you last chat about this one, mate? A while ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, not not for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know? Something uh, about it stayed down there? Yeah, I think it was the way she looked at me, you know? I yeah. just suddenly uh, pictured it. I don't usually picture that. Right, right, right. Yeah, just back the there for she, a moment. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's all right, mate. Just when you're ready. Yeah, I'm good. All right. So she looked at me and uh, and her face was unrecognisable. It had been, everything was broken, shattered. And I've dealt with other rape victims and all that type of thing, right? But this was beyond the pale, right? And so they come down, put on a stretcher, get her out. And we're out and we come out in the daylight, even worse. This uh, old Aboriginal guy who's down from the north, um, and was just kind of loitering with all these people, these guys. Um, he just starts walking off. He goes, "If that, I'm not putting up with this." And he walks off, and I go and grab him, and uh, and he goes, "I'll show you where he is. He's got a knife. He'll." And he said he'd kill you if you come. He'd come after him. I go, "Okay, where is he? Upstairs. He's in a tunnel. So they've dug a tunnel in this." Old derelict hotel. I go up there. I follow this guy up. Lechi comes up with a couple of other blokes. And he, he goes, he's in there. And there's nothing in the room. Just carpet on the floor. And I said, mate, there's nothing in there. He goes, under the floor. When I pulled that carpet back and there's a hole in the floor, there was, um, you could smell him straight away, Right. And the hole's only about that big, okay? The tunnel's about uh, one and a half metres high. It's about that, about that high. So you've got to crouch and monkey crawl through it. Uh, when I came down, there were some of her clothes lying there, so he's brought her clothes up. Uh, there's a bunch of pile of garbage up in the corner, and the room is kind of about the size of this room, right? But it's there, and he's dug a hole through the concrete wall. And then the next one, the next one, the next one. So they, they, this is what they've worked on, right? And so the idea is they can get out and they've dug a hole. So you get downstairs and then you'd be able to get out of the building. So you may have already gone, but this is a really strong smell. So I'm pretty sure he's there. So I've come in, I've got the pistol out. I have the quarter before I come through the, 
the, you know, because you don't, you might be just standing there waiting for me uh, on the other side of the wall. And I go into this next one. It's very dark, it's sort of quiet still. And um, and then I'm, and then I thought, you know what? I can't smell it anymore. The stench. I wonder if he's back in that room. So I went back to the room behind me and I looked across at this pile of rubbish in the corner. But next thing I saw this little ruffle and this eye appears looking into the torch. And uh, he's quickly rolled over. So if he had leant forward dead. And so I handcuffed him and then we dragged him out and I got up and, we, and he's just lying on the floor there. Uh, face up, and everyone's just looking at him, and uh, uh, and I look at the leechy, and he's gone. Okay, and then we went back to the station. The D's came, took him away, and then we got word that she's afraid, so they had to release him. She wouldn't charge him, so you have no complainant, so yeah. you got no offender. Just to take a couple of steps back, the girl that he abducted, kidnapped was with her boyfriend and he's this guy has attacked her you were saying I think he had a broken leg the guy was this all part of the same attack so they walked up a um, they walked up a, a lane and from the side there was a chair and there's a sort of a window there but from the side it doesn't look there like the hotel and they've yeah. gone hey good we're coming up and party and they're obviously a bit pissy yeah so and he's from Sweden um, she's a local girl and she's climbed up and he's climbed up then they Pushed the guy out and he fell back and broke his leg. Okay. And then okay. and then they've dragged and this guy's dragged her off. And when I was coming down the hall um in the dark, what the first indication I knew why I was where I was going was there was this glint of blood all over the wall uh from a hand and there was hair in it mm. as well. Her hair, long mm. hair, was mixed in it. So um uh, and then I found her in the in the shower thing. So he's dragged her into this derelict hotel, yeah. a hotel that he clearly lives in, in some yeah. sort of hovel. And then he's decamped, he's taken off. In memory, what was the time frame between that occurring and you arriving on site? Who, who called No, it must the... be like minutes. Right. That all minutes. happened that quick. It happened that quick. You know, the, the attacks, they don't take long. Mm-hmm. Mm. Usually, like a few minutes, and it's over. But it's the um, unbelievable barbarity. The I think it was just the brutality, the unbelievable brutality, this one stood out. to the point that yeah, that's what it stood out, right? Yeah. yeah. And so you've got intense emotions mm. running in that, mm. and to also think that cops don't get uh, emotional. It, but I had I was on a journey where, uh, like, I don't really get upset about these things. I mean, I can't even believe I got set upset then mm. about that. And I think I, I was really because maybe when I do have these memories about it, you don't go into too much detail, but mm. if you're having a big discussion about it, yeah. suddenly when her face turned around uh, and looked at me in the torchlight, um, that's I had that image and I just got a bit emotional about it. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, it doesn't even bother me, mm. you know? Um and I, I did have one woman, I had a woman jump off a building and land right in front of me when I was on patrol and, uh, and eight stories and she hit the pavement mm. and then she lifts her head and looks at me and, uh, was trying to speak to me and then slowly faded, couldn't speak, nothing came out and then she dies. Mm. Like that's a, 
when you have these moments where watching people die or get shot or whatever is, is one thing, but when they're looking you in the eye as they're going, well, that's... It's interesting too, um, Brett, you know, you, you, you talk about your exposure to this, this type of thing. This case that we're talking about, it's 1988, it's, uh, that's 35 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. And... Can I just say, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, you know, you and I know that in, in the coppers, you, there's stuff you said over and over, whether it's this stuff, whether it's fatal car accidents, everything, and, and we can say it doesn't affect us, but here we are 35 years down the track, mm. and I say with absolute due respect, this is still buried within you to the point where um, you had to take a breather a few moments ago because it came back to you. Mm. Stuff stays with you, doesn't mm. it? Some of it. Brett, I'm going to take you, if I could, to 1992. You'd been in the TRG Tactical Response Group for a period of time. I think you may have just left at this time. You're living in Bondi with your wife, and there's an incident which occurs out the front of your house. Yeah, so I just got home from work, and we lived uh, one street back from Bondi Beach, right? And it's right in where all the shops are, and there's a Commonwealth Bank drop box just to my left, basically, from my house. So I live in the terrace house. I've got two boys, and my wife's there, and we've got the front bedroom, which oversees the street. And my wife, she's dead asleep. She sits up and she goes, I just had a dream I was being shot at, right? (laughs) She actually said to me, right? And what happened was, because I'm getting changed and I'm I'm taking the gun out and everything, I say, we're in Bondi, Pam. The boss said, nothing happens here. That's what the actual boss, I'd only been there for like a week. And, um, And so next thing, she lies down and it goes, bang, 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 bang. So about a dozen shots, I think, all up. So I look out of the window as I'm taking the cuff. So I just cuffed the gun up. You know, you remember you used to put the cuff, uh, the gun, the cuffs on the weapon, the secure the weapon because you've got kids, right? So I'm undoing it and I'm looking out at this car sitting in the middle of the road in this small street I'm in, the Jacques Avenue. And I look across there and there's this guy coming towards us and the guy in the car is going, get in, get in. The other bloke goes, I've been hit, I've been hit. And he's got the pistol in his hand. And so I'm getting that and I have to, I've got a speed loader. So I speed load it and all that type of thing. And I come out, the guy's drops on the road. And when I come out in the body armor in a pair of shorts, <laughs> the uh, the guy looks at me, he takes off in the uh, Holden Commodore station wagon. And I roll over and this, this guy's looked at me and then he's, he's not moving. So I roll over and come over to him. You know, going out, because I don't know who else is involved in this, just one guy. And then I, I see a security guard, so he's further up the street. So basically, the guys were doing a drop at the drop box and, um, for the, from the Bondi Hotel. And he's fired at these guys, put all these bullet holes in these windows around the guys, and the security guards got up and they've had a, a gun battle. He got hit, clipped his heart, but he's still able to keep going for a period of time. Uh, so I come over there and I roll him over on his back gang tattoos and that type of thing sort of looks at me for a second but then clouds over and then he's doing the argonal breathing um which is the the body actually trying to suck in oxygen but he was 
kind of, and then he dies, right? And so I'm looking at it, and I look up, and these girls are crying, right? These young girls are crying, because it's only about 11 o'clock. And I look at these girls going, what are you crying about? And I look up at my wife, and she's looking at me, and and I didn't say anything to her. I just got up, and I walked in, grabbed a beer out of the fridge, and I put the tennis on, and I sit down and watch the tennis. And I've got a beer, and I've got a gun, on my hand on my gun, but I'm having a beer, and I'm just watching the tennis. And um, my wife comes in, and then looks at me, and uh, really weird, you know? And then she walks over to the, the bedroom door, and she goes, you're an asshole, and then slams the door. And I looked at her, and I went, What's wrong with her? That's how bad I'd got. Yeah. And cold. I had no empathy for anyone, right? Yeah. He's someone's kid, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and then when I end up working with the gang members, the Bloods and Crips, and Nortenius and Serenios, and, and then I actually saw them crying. Yeah, you know, such and such, their best mate's been killed. And they made them human. And, uh, and that's when I went, oh, God, I, I am an asshole. <laughs> mm, mm. You know, and, um, and I can understand where police in the hard places, you lose your hum- humanity, yeah. right? You lose yeah. your humanity. And, uh, but that's a kind of a protective mechanism maybe. Of course. But I don't really think too much about it. I think it's just you get used to it. Right, it becomes nothing to you. I mean, I should turn up at shootings in LA and you know Compton and all these areas, and everyone's just standing out. No one's crying, you know, except if you had a family member if they knew them. But everyone's kind of just hanging around, mm. you know, just looking at it because you're a nerd to it. It becomes so so normal. You just become a very brutal person, and I don't know how my wife uh, put up with me. Mate, could I say clearly, you don't have to be working in in uh, East LA to be become desensitised to that. You said yourself, you've been 10 years in the job at that stage, just come off TRG. Mm. And you yourself, you had trouble getting your head around why those girls were crying. Yeah, why are you going to, yeah, what's what, right, what are you crying about? What against are you so upset for? about? And then, and yeah. then sitting there watching uh, watching the tennis mate having a beer, um, having just nursed a bloke who's died outside and, and, and looking at your wife going... Well, did you find um, it's because it's a great story that you tell, uh, Breton, and it forces you, I guess, to see it through the perspective in this instance of your wife. And suddenly, does it suddenly dawn on you, like, "Fool, yeah, that's perhaps not normal. That's I need to address this." Is that is that how you push through the other I side? I didn't feel, yeah, yeah. I didn't see that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I saw it. I saw it later. Do you go back to that? Incident into that night as the as the as the point at which it, you're face to face your your wife's going you're on another planet you're going what's your problem I'm sure she's got you know like an angel sitting over her shoulder maybe a grandmother like whispering he's full of crap <laughs> he's at the pub he's not on the way home you know what I mean? yeah and um, yeah she picks me picks it out but there is uh, I've just seen some really freaky stuff in my life I think sometimes that I'm willing to say that who knows. That's why I try and stay on the straight and narrow nowadays and, sure. you know, and not, um, you know, not upset people too much, who knows, you know, because I don't want karma coming back and biting me. You, you said that at the time you, you didn't 
you didn't sort of realise that that desensitization for yourself was any issue whatsoever, but it was later that it sort of dawned on you. Just just walk me through that. Like how much later and what was it that made you realise, okay, maybe... It was a few years later and it was a few years later... And it really came down to having that relationship with the gang members themselves. Right, And right. then seeing them as human beings. Okay. Not just seeing them as, yeah, just another guy yeah. dies, another guy bites the dust, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um, understanding there there was, um, there's depth to them and it's not something you should really want to celebrate. And when I think about the heroin addicts, um, really, you know, we were, you know, locking up and whatever. And I think about the girls you're talking about. And I just, I just hope that there's not a cop like me around if my kids become addicted to drugs, because you know, I'd want something to freaking help them, not mm. persecute them. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I've changed my view on, you know, for information on like that. I mean, I just see the drug trade as, as kind of a, um, a war that perhaps we don't really need to have. And I would rather, uh, if people become addicted, let's treat it, mm. but really understand that. And really it's just giving employment to these guys. I think eventually someone, I mean, I know they're already doing it with marijuana, but you know, they'll probably end up doing it with cocaine or something else like that. And, um, because they're not going to let the trade go. I'll just take you back to a point you made, a comment you made that, that I thought was a, an interesting one that, um, You've got kids yourself. You said that you just hope that if one of your kids had a problem with drugs or something that they didn't end up being dealt with with a copper like you. It seems to go hand in hand, mate, with the realisation you had working with the gangs that once you meet them and you realise that they're real people and they have aspirations and they're just taking a path which is different to you and I and others. Did your mind go back to the young Polynesian bloke dying outside your house. Yeah, he he too, you mentioned before, was someone's someone's son and we know we know, don't we, how 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 wonderfully close those Polynesian families are and, and the the death of one of their young ones, the, the the black cloud that it would bring to that massive extended Polynesian family. But as you quite rightly said, it's very easy to look beyond that at the moment and go, Oh, he's just a gangster, he's put himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. But now the the different party, the better part, I don't know, call it what you will, is saying, well, hang on. Well, amongst the gangs, though, I mean, in the, they at least, they celebrate, um, yes. you know, their death. I mean, they're usually just killing each other, right? Yeah. It's just when they end up shooting kids or getting in the way, it's just mm. dumb. Mm. You know, if they shoot each other, they shoot each other. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And yeah. we had one where the, the gangsters were shooting outside the house and they, and the dad's opened the door and he's got a Sunday dinner. He's all dressed up for it. He gets hit in the chest and bleeds out. You know, the family's there, the grandparents. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah, this the is kids. in LA. This yeah. is in LA. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just two dumb drug dealers mm. having mm. a shootout in the street. So, Brett, here we are, 2024. You've been out of the job for, for quite a number of years. Can you just give us a sense of um, – where you're at now um, uh, in, in, in your, you know, in your working life and, and what you've taken from those years policing? Well, the police has given me the ability to be really good at dealing with and understanding chaos. And so I set up a company with my brother 
who also used to be in the cross and then went to fire rescue and we've set up a company which is um been is national and international dealing with crisis and emergency risk management um for organizations you know we uh, which is everything from the healthcare industry, hospitals, uh, aged care, to commercials, uh, Sydney Water, where we run massive exercises for them. With fire rescue, I got all the, um, I worked up in the mines and got accredited as a firefighter, fire rescue, industrial fire rescue. With the army, I went into the medical corps and I'm now a combat medic with the army and actually saved some lives, which is really a great thing. Mm. Um uh, and also had a, look, a, a great opportunity to train young soldiers going to Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, what it's really going to be like when people are trying to kill you. And, uh, and you've got to be, have to be prepared emotionally and physiologically for that process, uh, which is what I bring into um, my business emergency management. I go, it's not just about the theory, it's the physiological responses that your body has to that these type of crises, which is kind of telling you to run away really quick or fight. Right. Mm. And, uh, or some people just shut down and also how bosses need to be able to be able to you know, gather their thoughts and, and have processes in place to make systems work for you and your people work for you rather than just the chaos overwhelm you and cost you brand reputation, everything else like that. And that's from national, uh, international hotels. I've been to Russia and I've worked in China and Japan and all across the, the world um, which also in some pl places actually took me to dealing with local gangs, which were uh, impacting on business operations. Uh, in other words, liaising with the guys to directly uh, protect the business. It's an asset to you, right? Mm. Uh, which meant, you know, some with family members get some work and all that type of thing. Okay, this is what you do. All um, the experiences that I had there had prepared me for that capability. Mm. whether it be in the army or for my business world, you've got to be of value to people. And I, with the army, once I, I went out to support the commandos and this SAS sergeant rang me and he says, oh, yeah, Sergeant Stevens, uh, what value do you bring me, right? It, you know, it really makes you reflect on something about yourself right at the moment. And I go, well, this is my experience and this is what I do. Because I have a car in 30 minutes to pick you up. And so... There is life uh, outside the emergency services and police and everything. You just got to understand what value do you bring uh, the organisations that you want to deal with, and mm. and, um, and don't expect uh, you know them to know that. I mean, you've got to basically sell yourself, and you want to be. Uh, I said the work health and safety, the risk management space. I mean, that's a really good space. Cybercrime and all those areas. If and if, but if you're able to do everything rather than just one thing or be with a group of guys who also have other strengths. You provide more value to the organisation than rather just be a single consultant. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Brett, I, I just want to thank you so very much for coming into the studio here in Sydney today. You, 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 it's been an intriguing chat with you and, I, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, it's taken the, those that listen to this uh, podcast into a world that most have only ever really seen from the, the luxury of their lounge rooms, mate, you know, watching watching shows on TV, you know, working in the cross uh, through the 80s, 90s, tactical response groups, some of those tough days in Bondi, and, uh, and of course, since then, your work um, within the gangs, both here and overseas. But I just want to thank you, you know, for your honesty, for your um, for taking us into those environments, and um, thank you, mate, so much for that 13 years of service, and it sounds like it's uh, it's it's in good stead for... Uh, for the environments that you work in now here and overseas. So thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's been great to meet you. Thank you for having me. 
Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.